America's present need is not heroic, but healing. Not nostrums, but normalcy. Not revolution, but restoration. Not agitation, but adjustment. Not surgery, but serenity. Not the dramatic, but the Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. When Warren Harding became US president in March of 1921, the world was also reeling from a global pandemic. Economies were depressed and the mood was sombre. Harding's predecessor wasn't even there. Yet what happened next was an extraordinary explosion of activity and innovation, the Roaring Twenties. And they say history doesn't repeat itself, but sometimes it rhymes. Quite a lot of economists have been wondering whether we might be in for some roaring 20s of our own once the COVID-19 pandemic is behind us. Businessweek senior economic writer Peter Coy took a closer look at the 1920s in a fascinating article this week and came away with some interesting lessons for today. I'm going to talk to him about that in a minute. We also have a timely chat with Dr Carmen Reinhardt, who's been chief economist of the World Bank since last summer. And I'm going to check in briefly with our chief European economist, Jamie Rush, who's been working out exactly how much the Covid crisis is going to cost the world's governments. I think the answer will surprise you. But first, let's go back to the 1920s with Peter Coy. Peter, thanks for joining us again. Remind us about some of those parallels between... R20s and those 1920s. As I mentioned in the introduction, we had just come off a pandemic. Actually, that one had ended by 1921, whereas this one, we're still very much in the middle of it. But there was this scarring caused by all those deaths and disabilities. We were in the middle of a very deep recession. The recession that hit in 1920-21 saw an enormous decline in prices in particular, If it had not been overshadowed by the 1930s, it would be remembered to this day as one of the most severe recessions or the most severe recession of the 20th century. So that was the environment that Warren Harding came into the presidency during. Um, His predecessor, of course, was Woodrow Wilson. Wilson was not present at the inauguration, not because he had gone to Mar-a-Lago, but because he had had a severe stroke and was disabled. So it was a somber time and an inauspicious time. And yet that summer, July of 1921, the serious recession ended and the 20s, as we think of them now, began. We had the mass adoption of the automobile, radio, motion pictures, assembly lines, labor-saving electrical appliances, indoor plumbing, just an amazing profusion of the technologies that today we take for granted, but were new then. And it was a time of great excitement and ferment worldwide. And it, it as a one historian I talked to said at the time, it was, in a way, the first modern decade. And I mean, we uh, it's, it's a bit unfair just to talk about the flappers uh, and, to, and the jazz, because as you say, there were some really fundamental technological changes that came right into the home. What sign of that kind of breakthrough in technology are we seeing today? I mean, we obviously did have 
uh, historically rapid development of the vaccines right. against COVID, and people have rightly rightly um, taken note of that. But elsewhere, do you think we are looking potentially at an explosion of innovation like we saw then? You know, I think that possibility has to be taken seriously. And you put your finger on one of the most important developments, which was the the vaccine, not just these particular vaccines, but the underlying technologies that enabled them, the biotechnology, genetic engineering, uh, has taken uh, leaps forward. And that will enable other life-saving and life-improving technologies in this decade and beyond. So this could be argued is the same sort of general purpose technology that pays dividends for years to come, just as in the 1920s, what we had were two important general purpose technologies. One, the internal combustion engine, which enabled automobiles and trucks to be wide widely adopted, and uh, electrification, which uh, brought some of these appliances we talked to into the home, as well as uh, electrified factories made them far more efficient. There was a boom in manufacturing in the 1920s. So today, the equivalence would be the medicine, the biotechnology, and then digitization. Um, We've had computers for decades now, but the question is, are the latest advances in artificial intelligence, cloud computing, mobile computing, and so on, do they collectively add up to a general purpose technology whose fruits we will continue to enjoy through the 2020s and beyond? And we have a lot of uh, pent up demand. I guess that's one thing. I mean, people, it, it was a it was a year of years of big spending in the 20s, uh, coming out of the World War One, coming out of the pandemic. I guess we, Peter, we might see some of that, and at least in the next year or two. Yes, I think there will be a period where people will want to bust out and enjoy life again once they can get out of their pods and their bubbles. Um, Carnival Cruise Lines is launching its biggest ship ever this spring, and they're hopeful that they'll get plenty of passengers. You know, you can anecdotally talk to people who say, I can't wait to get back on a cruise ship, Um, even though to others of us, it seems a little frightening. But that's going to carry you only so far. It can't be strictly just uh, a splurge. To be sustainable, um, economic growth has to be based on something more than that, which gets to this question of whether we are stuck in a period of secular stagnation. And the, the conditions in the 2020s are quite different from those of the 1920s. We have slower labor force growth. We have slower improvement in educational attainment. Both of those are crucial for economic growth. We also have, as Larry Summers likes to point out, uh, a situation where we have desired savings and excess of desired investment, which is equated only with extremely low, even negative real interest rates. So it's it's hard to imagine that you can look at data like that and say, oh yes, this is going to be a boom decade. It's, it's, it's not the way it's feeling. But there's one place you can see quite a lot of optimism and quite a lot of exuberance, and that's in the stock market. And that does also feel like a, a funny kind of uh, 
parallel with the 1920s. Of course, we associate the 1920s with those shoeshine boys offering offering stock tips. Um, and right now we have crazy things happening to some uh, stocks because of words word being passed around on Reddit and other online forums. So what do you think? Do you think we are, with, at least in the stock market, we might be seeing a kind of 20s style experience? You know, uh, Stephanie, that's a great point. It's something I didn't really delve into in the article very much. It doesn't take much to remember that the 1920s were succeeded by the 1930s. Uh, and the, the final act of the 1920s was the great stock market crash of October 1929, which ushered in the Great Depression. Looking at today's market, you don't see the same kind of exuberance overall. You see it here and there. You see it with uh, Bitcoin. You see it with uh, some, a few tech stocks here and there. Well, we did have the Great Depression straight after the 1920s. But the, doing the reading you did for this piece and thinking about the comparisons of the 1920s, do you think there are any uh, warnings from that period that we should take seriously? Well, there are. One is the danger of protectionism and inward looking. The legacy of World War I was that America turned inward. The Congress, uh, led by farm state uh, Republicans, refused to join the League of Nations. And uh, through the 20s, the United States had high tariff barriers, which made it hard for countries to earn their way out of the wreckage of World War I by selling more to the United States. It, it demanded uh, interest payments to the penny on war debts from the UK and France, which squeezed those countries. They, in turn, had nowhere to go for the money except to demand reparations from Germany, which hurt Germany and uh, angered Germans and contributed to the rise of Adolf Hitler. So you see how one war, the aftermath of one war, led directly into the next one. The United States learned its lesson from that, from the tragedy and trauma of the Depression and World War II, and had a much more enlightened policy after World War II, adopted international institutions like the United Nations, the International Monetary Fund, and the World Bank, and uh, became a leader now, what we see, what we saw in the Trump administration was a pulling back from that an America first mentality. And now we have a new president who is promising to re-engage with the world. But I think there was something learned, <laughs> unfortunately and forgotten, but learned from the experience of the 1920s and the aftermath. Well, and of course, you do draw that that final uh, moral in your in your piece that just understanding history, just remembering history, can be helpful uh, in itself. And I think that's certainly true. So, Peter uh, Coy, thank you very much. Thank you. Now we have our, our chief EMEA economist, good friend to Stefanovics, Jamie Rush, to tell us more about the cost of all this borrowing that governments have done uh, in response to COVID-19. Uh, Jamie, just tell us briefly, what's the price tag been so far in terms of the extra borrowing that governments have had to do? Well, so we think that, that G7 governments have probably added around about $7 trillion of debt 
to their to their debt piles in 2020. And of course, the spending is ongoing as the as the new strains sweeping across the world. More support is needed, so we haven't reached the final price tag yet. And how much is that actually costing them day to day? I mean, they obviously had to they had to go out and they had to borrow that from the markets, but. When you look at what the impact is on their their cost of, of their debt servicing, what is that price tag? It's actually it's actually not very much, uh, as we know, because the <laughs> the central banks have obviously stepped in to finance it, and that's kept borrowing costs very very low. Um, but just as a sort of a summary statistic, it, debt to GDP was about eighty percent in two thousand and seven. It's since risen to 140% of GDP in the G7 economies on average. Uh, but it's not actually going to cost any more to service that debt uh, than, um, than in 2007. And the reason is just that interest rates are so low. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's quite astonishing. And when you say it's not costing them anything, I mean, there is an interest rate on that borrowing, um, but we're saying it's, not, it's, it's less than inflation. So you're effectively, if you allow for inflation, you're getting free money if you're a government these days. Yeah, that's right. So the, the, the nominal interest rate on the COVID era debt is about half a percent. And I think the IMF is expecting inflation of about 1.3% this year. So it's going to be outstripped by price gains. And actually, that's true now. But we think it's probably also going to be true even in 2030, 10 years from now. We think that the cost of COVID era debt will be about 1.3%, which will be probably still below inflation. And that's a key point. And obviously, in the, in the States and other places are having debates about whether we could possibly, having had that enormous stimulus program last year, could we possibly spend another trillion or more than that dollars uh, supporting the economy? And the short answer from your analysis is we could, you could certainly afford it. Yeah, exactly. It won't hit the budget so much. Um, but I, I think, you know, we're, we're obviously assuming that interest rates stay incredibly low. And you know, if, certainly if you look at the euro area, there's basically no increase in interest rates priced in forever, pretty much. Uh, in the US, it's a bit different. But clearly, if rates were to rise a bit faster, then, then those costs do start to filter through after a few years, and, and it does become more costly. We talked at the beginning of the programme, actually, with Peter Coy about unexpected things happening and potentially, you know, we could have an explosion in innovation the way that we had in the, in the 1920s. Um, if that started to push up interest rates, how much do you have to see in terms of the, that bit of the world changing uh, for governments, to, especially the governments like Italy, for example, to get into trouble? Well, I, I, it's, <clears throat> you've got a bit of space. You've got a bit of space for policy to normalise, and obviously, if it's a uh, if it's because poli- because the economy is growing faster than everyone expected, that gets you yet more space. So it's that would be a good thing. Um, I think the the danger is if rates go up and growth doesn't follow it, and in which case you're looking at probably around about a hundred basis points of higher interest rate costs would eventually take you back to sort of mid nineteen nineties interest rates for the US, for example, uh, when things were a bit more um, when that was more of a concern. Uh, 200 basis points and things start to look pretty hairy um, for, for most uh, for most economies. I guess there was a good fo- I mean, a final point we should remember buried in what you were just saying, that you know if interest rates go up because the world is sort of growing, then governments might be pleased with that, even if it was causing them to, to spend more on their on their borrowing. I mean, that is a fundamental point, isn't it? This isn't sort of um, it's not great news for governments that they're finding it so cheap to borrow because it tells you that the world is in a rather flat, stagnant place. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, um, you know, we're all hoping that the economy gets going. Productivity, and that's the crucial one, of course, 
picks up so that it's actually sustainable and real interest rates being higher can be sustainable. That's what we're looking for. Whether we'll get it or not, that's uh, that's another question. So when we have to go and remortgage and f- probably the first time in the generation, we might find we've actually got a higher interest rate than before. We should we should not worry too much. We should think that's a good thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thanks very much, Jamie. <laughs> Now to one of the most influential economists working in the world today, Dr. Carmen Reinhardt. She's famous as the co-author of a seminal analysis of the long-term impact of financial crises, but regular listeners might remember she talked to us just before she was appointed to the World Bank last June about the differences between the COVID crisis and other economic emergencies we've had through history. I was lucky enough to have a conversation with Dr. Reinhardt this week as part of the Bloomberg The Year Ahead conference. And here is that interview now. Dr. Reinhardt Carmen, very good uh, of you to join us at Bloomberg uh, the year ahead. And um, let me get straight to the point of this year's recovery and what we're looking at. Um, you know, we maybe a few weeks ago even, the world was quite optimistic about the kind of pace of growth uh, we might see this year, a lot of demand pent up from, from last year. Now, uh, around the world, concern around new variants, new question marks over the rollout of vaccines, great concerns about that process in the developing world. Are you looking fundamentally uh, at a more sombre picture when you look at 2021? Or do you think we could still see a decent recovery? Well, uh, I began to have my doubts about what was the prevalent view earlier in 2020 that this was going to be a (laughs) V-shape. Again, you know, very different technology, very different world, but you go back to the Spanish influenza and that kicked off in April of 1918 and and circled the globe several times till, you know, 1920. So my expectations of recovery were always on the halting side. I'm not looking for a quick recovery. And I think what my my overarching message, this is with work that I did with Vincent Reinhardt last summer for for, uh, foreign affairs, don't confuse rebound with recovery. True recovery will take longer. There's a conversation around the K-shaped recovery that has taken the place of that V-shaped recovery. We talk about it in terms of inside economies, one group doing a much better than the other. But do you fear that there's also going to be a global K-shaped recovery when you look at the prospects for developing countries versus advanced? Well, indeed, one of the the, the many uh, concerning facts of, of, of this crisis is how unequal you know, it's a very regressive shock. It's regressive both within countries, you know, both within countries in the sense that lower income households and uh, smaller firms have taken on a disproportionate hit. It's also very unequal across countries uh, where, you know, the poorest and even considerably into the middle income haven't had the ammunition, the capacity to do the kind of counter-cyclical fiscal stimulus, uh, you know, the transfers for social safety nets, the spending on, on health that the advanced economies uh, have done. And again, by contrast to the 2008, 2009, 
after 2008, 2009, what we saw, if you look, for example, at credit ratings, you saw the credit ratings of emerging markets go up while the credit ratings of the advanced economies went down. Now the wedge between the two uh, is getting bigger, and it isn't because the advanced economies are being marked up. Uh, so it's it's very unequal uh, uh, impact uh, globally as well. We have our forecasts out there saying hey, growth is about four percent, but look, you know, if the is the dispersion around that is is significant you could see significantly higher growth if if everything goes very smoothly in terms of global distribution of vaccines or you could see less than half of that if if the process is is bogged down and and doesn't quite have the speedy outreach that is hoped for well that's uh and that's certainly chastening for people to take on board that you think that the growth rate for this year could could that forecast could halve um, given if we see a continuation of the kind of problems that we've had. On that uh, common debt framework, I mean, clearly the key thing about that G20 agreement at the end of last year was the inclusion of China and others in the same framework. You've had Chad now be the first country to uh, apply for restructuring under that framework. Are you expecting many more countries to join? And would that would that be a success to have you know, ironically, a success to see as many countries as possible use that framework rather than fight restructuring? So, uh, look, uh, success is, uh, you know, it, when you're dealt with a bad hand, it, a quick response and quick correction is, is the preferred outcome, is not the outcome you would have chosen. You would have preferred not to be dealt a bad hand in the first place. But given that, as I said, you know, a number of countries already started pre-COVID with very vulnerable uh, external debt positions. Uh, so uh, getting to your the core of the question is, is, is Chad, you know, a sign of things to come? Uh, look, I am not looking for the kind of tidal wave that we saw in the early 1980s, okay? And I'll explain briefly why. Uh, but we are looking for numerous, especially among some of the low income, you know, highly indebted besides Chad, you know, we have the case of Zambia. There's a question of, you know, Ethiopia. There, there are many others that would benefit from a faster debt resolution through the common framework. Um, but the reason I said I just want to go back to that, that I don't expect the tidal wave that we got in the early 80s, is in the early 80s, we had a spike in U.S. interest rates, you know, where indebted countries saw their debt service skyrocket uh, literally overnight. Uh, here we have, given the low for long, we have an environment in which debt vulnerabilities are playing out. At a, at a slower pace, but they're still playing out. Well, we have some questions in. One of them uh, goes to something which has obviously been a big part of your academic work. It says, should governments maintain the same mindset towards spending and borrowing after the pandemic? Um, now we've had, I would say, an officially, officially a very relaxed position around 
uh, government borrowing overall in response to the pandemic. And indeed, uh, Kristalina Gorgieva, whenever I've spoken to her, for, for someone who's the head of the International Monetary Fund, who's been very relaxed, very concerned about the risk of spending too little, not spending too much. Do you see a change in that mindset over the next few years? Or do you think that there, that really is a very low-grade concern, the fiscal borrowing and levels of debt? I don't want to put words in Kristalina's mouth, but certainly also the way I view it is this is, this is a war. That the human cost, uh, the, the, the cost to, to the economy, the cost to every development indicator almost that one can think about um, has been you know, off the charts in terms of relative to any kind of business cycle or financial crisis you want to compare it to. So how do you react in a war? Well, you worry about winning the war, and then you worry how you're going to pay for the war. Uh, and one of the concerns that I laid out in, last summer in this piece that I mentioned with, with Vincent Reinhardt uh, is the, there is the risk that people, you know, policymakers confuse rebound with recovery, which means you're really back to your pre-crisis per capita income, uh, and tighten too quickly, uh, and declare victory prematurely. That scenario is a real source of concern. So, you know, it's not that I embraced, you know, high levels of debt. I am not, I don't take a benign view of having high levels of indebtedness, but I think the priorities uh, is you first win the war. Uh, and we're still in the thick of it. It's been such a somber and appropriately somber interview. I wanted to try and tease out maybe a little circles of light. If you look in the financial markets, obviously there's quite a lot of exuberance around the productivity improvements that could come uh, from uh, COVID uh, forcing companies to do things differently, forcing individuals to do things differently, changing supply chains, all of these things. Is there a part of that story that could also apply to developing countries? Is there any silver linings that you see or opportunities you could seize? Look, crises, uh, because they, they disrupt the very core of the economy and the way we work, the way we think, can lead, and I mentioned wars, by the way, wars have been, you know, not exactly the way one would like to go about it, but wars have been period of a very intense technological innovation. And in this case, I think one of the fallouts that I'm uh, on the positive side is also when you look at globally the amount of medical research that has been, you know, brought to bear during the COVID pandemic. And one thinks of positive externalities that that concentrated effort in medicine that we have seen in, 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 in this, in this uh, crisis, I think we, we can't really measure what some of the benefits uh, that may, may come from that. But, you know, look, I think, you know, one can, say very little at this stage. I think there's still a margin of uncertainty on you know, what the new normal uh, in terms of productivity, in terms of potential output is gonna look like. And you know, I don't wanna be a wet rag, but I think before we get to that silver lining, 
I think the emerging markets are going to have a very rough road. You talk about fiscal stimulus, but one big source of stimulus and liquidity during this crisis has also been that banks and financial institutions have uh, adopted forbearance and, and grace periods for households and firms to repay their loans. Um, we don't know what awaits us when many of those grace periods come to an end, who will be insolvent and who will be illiquid. That's a risk still. So, you know, we still have a rough road in the interim. Well, uh, Dr. Ryan Hart, uh, you have given us plenty to think about, not all of it uh, upbeat, but certainly uh, serious and important. And you've also reminded us what a privilege it is for the World Bank to have someone with your historical frame um, sitting in that job as, as chief economist. Thank you so much. Thank you, a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. We have our winter break now. When we come back in April, I hope the world will look a bit brighter than it does today. If I speak to anyone really fascinating in the meantime, I will be putting it on this feed, so keep an eye out for that. And remember, you can always find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website, app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can get more economic news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics by following at Economics on Twitter. This episode was produced by Magnus Henriksen, with special thanks to Peter Coy, Jamie Rush, Dr. Carmen Reinhardt, and all at Bloomberg the year ahead. Lucy Meekin is the executive producer of Stephanomics, and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. <laughs>